Morning, everyone. This is our annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea Week. This is the 23rd year we've brought great writers to the campus. And today you're going to see uh, how great this really is. Uh, we have Krista Tippett with us, who is... Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you got your listeners here. So Krista Tippett has been a foreign correspondent in, uh, in Eastern Europe, a very, very prominent uh, uh, worldwide journalist, who also hosts the wildly popular podcast on NPR called On Being, which won the Peabody Award for being one of the best broadcasts. That podcast deals with complexities and uh, nuances of life in deep and meaningful and respectful ways that most radio does not. She was awarded the National Humanities Medal in 2014, She's embarking on a new venture now called the Civil Conversations Project. The three books that she's written I found were absolutely stunning. One is called Becoming Wise, an Inquiry into the Art and Mystery of Living. Another one called Einstein's God, Conversations about Science and the Human Spirit. And then Speaking of Faith, Why Religion Matters and How to Talk About It. Her time with us today um, continues into an interview this evening. If uh, you want to come back at 7 p.m., I'll be doing an interview uh, with her here. It's a ticketed deal. You can get them at the door. You can get them online. Pointloma.edu slash writers. So, uh, but I also want to tell you who helped bring her here. The Office of Spiritual Development was one of the significant pieces to uh, bringing her here. First Church of the Nazarene here on this campus and the Women's Studies program here. Would you give a writer's symposium and Point Loma Nazarene welcome to Krista Tippett. <clears throat> okay, I've spoken, I'm sorry, I've spoken in a lot of different places and different settings and that is absolutely my favorite, <clears throat> favorite pre-speaking experience. So thank you. Thank to the musicians and to all of you. I loved that. Um, it's a real honor to be here. Um, and I, everywhere I go now, I carry with me just this knowledge that we inhabit a moment of great tenderness and tumult in our life together. Our world is hurting. And that's across all the divides we create. That's not one party or another, it's not one group or another, it's all around, across all our chasms. There's a lot of pain and fear. And what dominated the news of yesterday and today and 20 minutes ago pretty much tells a story of disarray and despair and destruction. And that is part of the story of our time, but it is not the whole story. There is also the generative possibility of our time. In this room, I think I can use the word redemptive story of our time. The creating, daring, healing story of our time, which I think I know after just these last few minutes, everyone in this room wants to lean into and be part of. This story is quieter than that narrative of despair. It is less publicized, it is less investigated, 
but it is every bit as telling about what it means to be human and what we are, as a species are capable of. And I think a lot about how we are at this moment in which we are the first generation, and you in particular, the first generation of our species with the tools to think and act and speak together as a species. And what I want to talk to you about for the next few minutes is, oh, where's that clock? Here's my clock. Is love and joy. And actually, I kind of feel like you don't need me to talk to you about that. Um, so I'm going to plunge ahead. But, um, but in, I'm in a lot of rooms uh, where the, word lo- the words love and joy would not be used. Um, they're not how we're often discussing publicly how we rise to this moment. In this sense, they're kind of countercultural. Um, what I do see more of is that on every side of all of our cultural chasms, there is lots of mobilizing anger and lots of intellectual and physical creativity and actually a lot of wit that is being directed at what we fear and what we reject and what we're reacting against. There's an epidemic of despair and anger, certainly in my field of journalism. And I think that this self-righteous anger, even the most righteous of it, is demeaning us. It is distorting my field of journalism. It is demoralizing the best people in our midst, and it's not helping. Now, to be sure, across all of our chasms, there are fights to be waged, and there are people on front lines of danger And there are some of us who are going to be called to throw our bodies in front of other vulnerable bodies. There are other callings of our time, too, a multitude of callings that we need to keep in our toolkit to keep ourselves grounded and also to accompany those on the front lines of pain and fear. We need social weavers. We need artisans of community. We need quiet bearers of calm calmers of fear. These kinds of callings are so quiet but so urgent if what we really want to be about is calling our, ourselves, uh, rising ourselves up to our best, to the best selves we can be, and also inviting that in our neighbors and those who we perceive to be our enemies. And I think we can be bold enough to call this mobilizing towards love. Virtue is an old-fashioned word that I find is magnetic to new generations, um, even people who are not in any traditional way religious. Because I, and I think especially to new generations who instinctively grasp their need for practical disciplines to translate aspiration into action. And I don't think of virtues as the stuff of saints and heroes, but they are just tools for the art of living. They are pieces of intelligence about human behavior that neuroscience is now exploring with new words and images. It's ancient intelligence that's been in the Bible all along. What we practice, we become. I think of virtues as spiritual technologies. And love, of course, is the superstar virtue of virtues. And at the same time, it is one of the most watered-down words in the English language, right? I love this weather, I love your dress, I fall in love, I fall out of love. What we've done with this word, 
we've done with this thing, this possibility, this essential bond, this way of acting. We've made it private, contained it in family, contained it in our intimate communities. When love's audacity is in its potential to cross tribal lines, I long to make this word love echo differently in hearts and ears, not less complicated, but differently so. Other languages have a fuller ecosystem of words than English for describing love's manifold forms. The sliver of love's potential, which the Greeks separated out as eros, is where we load culturally load so much of our desire and energy, center so much of our imagination around delight and despair, and define so much of our sense of completion. But there is also the love of philia, friendship. I was with one of the great peacemakers in our world just these last few days, John Paul Lederach, who comes from the Mennonite tradition. And he said, peacemaking at its heart, in one word, is befriending. And there is also, of course, the New Testament love of agape, which is love as embodied compassion, expressions of practical kindness that can be offered to a friend or a stranger or an enemy. And you know, I hate using that word enemy, but we all know what I'm talking about. We are living in an enemy culture right now. I'm also fascinated that the root word in both Hebrew and Arabic, the root word for compassion, is related to the word for womb. The love between a mother and a child is the fiercest and most paradoxical and challenging form of love that exists from the womb onwards, across the span of both lives. A merger of pleasure and risk and sacrifice, a dance of alternating vulnerabilities, a wellspring of joy, a challenge to endless learning by mistake, the moment-to-moment -moment evolution of care. My question my, in this moment, writ large, culturally is, what would it mean to embody love as a muscular, practical, public good, as galvanizing as hate has become now? On the future of my ability to do this, on, of our ability to do this together, I have more questions than answers. But I do believe that a good question, generously posed, seriously held, is a powerful thing. And I believe that a paradoxical space has opened up in the middle of our life together, our public life, our common life, our political life, since we began to hold the question of hate. We have begun to call out hate seriously, to name it when we see it, to shine a light on it, to see its power. We've created a legal category for it. And this creates, in my mind, not just an opening, but a mandate to aspire to the other human, the only human capacity that is big and audacious and transformative enough to meet hate. Spiritual geniuses and saints have always called humanity to love, and so have social reformers 
who've shifted the world on its axis. John Lewis, Representative John Lewis, who is one of the civil rights leaders, has said the civil rights movement was primarily a work of love, though we scarcely remember and speak of it in that way. The political and economic aspirations of this monumental work of social change in living memory that I think we've only begun to mine in terms of what it can teach us in our century, it was based, it was centered around a vision of, a biblical vision of creating the beloved community. And at every turn, these last, especially these last, this last year really, as I've been listening to America and the world, I keep hearing this word surfacing in unexpected places, persistently, as a longing for our life together. Now, still, my fellow journalists have no idea what to do with this, or whether to take it seriously, or how to take it seriously. And recently I was reading back into some writings of some of the things Martin Luther King Jr. said, and I realized he had the same problem in his lifetime. In 1967, he gave a speech to the Southern Leadership Conference, and he said, um, darkness cannot put out darkness, only light can do that. And I say to you, I have also decided to stick to love. He was getting a lot of flack. Stop talking about this love thing. We need something powerful. He said, I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems, and I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today. I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. And I have seen too much hate, he said. I've seen too much hate on the faces of sheriffs in the South. I've seen hate on the faces of too many Klansmen and too many white citizens counselors in the South to want to hate myself because every time I see it, I know that it does something to faces and personalities. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. Now, I love it that he calls out love as emotional bosh because that's another really great way to talk about how this word that we need this thing, this quality that we need above all others can so easily become trivialized. Something I also am thinking a lot about these days is the irony that in our lives, in our lives as individuals, in our family lives, in our lives as a community that put lo puts love at the center like this one, we have a lot of deep intelligence and experience about the complexity of love. Um, our intimate experiences of love and civility actually help us cut across every stereotype of how impossible it would be to love our political and social others in a moment like this. Hour after hour, day after day, to love the people close to us is full of as much fierceness and disagreement as it is full of harmony and niceness, right? We learn to disagree if we're staying in relationship with people. We learn that sometimes, however important something feels to us, 
We're not going to talk about it right now because it's more important to keep everybody in the room. And you know, sometimes we love someone by, by, not, by not talking about things we know will upset them. Our lives of practical love are full of generous listening and practical civility, not as ends in and of themselves, but as means of living more abundantly. And if we claim love, on my page here it's capitalized, L-O-V-E, if we claim love as what we are orienting towards, we can be, if we can be clear about the ground on which we stand and where we all want this to go and grow. And I want to add that in a community like this, in lives of faith like yours, your robust, your ease with the language of love, your passion about it is a special gift that you have to open, that you have to offer to this cultural moment. And I believe that if and as we, in our life together, claim love as, a, as, a, as what we are going to explore and investigate and live into together, we also can allow ourselves to be joyful. We can do the hard work, and the hard work is inside ourselves and outside ourselves, and we can insist on joy. And that is another profoundly countercultural thing to say right now. I've been in several rooms lately. Uh, I was in a room with uh, people who are running nonprofits and philanthropies and you know, a person in that room who has genuine power, you know, millions and millions of dollars to give away, said, how could we find joy in a moment like this? And I think the question is probably, how can we not muster joy in a moment like this? I experience so many good people right now who feel that we can't allow ourselves joy. Now, it will be a luxury perhaps a privilege, perhaps an insult to the many people on losing sides of our current equations. There's a sense that many good people are nurturing anxiety and distress in themselves and thus in others because it seems like the only reasonable and maybe the only compassionate way to be. But surely, amidst all of our greatest hopes for the world, for our neighbors and our enemies. We want the world to ultimately recover its capacity for lightness and joy. Joy is not a luxury, it's not a privilege, it is a life-giving, resilience-making, and I would say a faithful human birthright. We can't call forth in the world something we do not believe in and embody. And human flourishing, which is something different from happiness, I, I think maybe the right to pursue happiness has led us astray a bit culturally, but human flourishing has never ever just been about reacting, to what's, reacting well to what's going right. Human flourishing is a baseline of well-being from which we take in and work with and grow with whatever life throws at us all the sadness and loss and grief 
that alongside what goes right for us, all of this is the very element of human becoming, the very stuff of vitality. And we just were looking at this. There is joy and praise as a practice, as a habit, a spiritual technology, if you will, in the Psalms of the Hebrew Bible, a gratitude that is far more resilient than the circumstances of the moment. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I come back in this moment of uh, where, you know, being bombarded a hundred times before breakfast by the same terrible thing that just happened um, to these lines from, the, from Paul, St. Paul's letter to the Philippians that were so meaningful for me growing up. Um, they come back to me in this 21st century in a new way. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It goes on to say, keep on doing the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. And fascinatingly, there's even scientific research now that shows that a practice of gratitude, and they actually even use the language of you will have peace of mind. I think a lot about also a conversation I had a few years ago with Brother David Stendel Rost, who is this amazing Benedictine monk who you may have seen his TED talk. And you know, he lived through, he's Austrian, he lived through his country being uh, occupied by fascism as a teenager and, you know, emigration. And he's lived through some of the hardest things the world can throw at you. And he says, it would be absurd to suggest that any of us should be grateful for everything. He said, no, you can't be grateful for everything. But in every moment, you can be grateful. You can find something to be grateful for. If I have learned anything in all my conversations all these years... It is this strange, deep truth of our species that wisdom and healing emerge precisely through moments like this when we have to hold seemingly opposing realities in a creative tension and interplay. Dismay and joy, power and tenderness, pain and hope, beauty and brokenness, mystery and conviction, mine and yours. I want to name again the audacious, magnificent ups upside of our moment of reckoning, the converging tectonic shifts that underlie the stress of this moment, globalization and digital revolution, that we are acquiring the tools to think and act as a species. You are the first generation to grow up with those tools that might help us live into our name, homo sapiens, creatures who are wise. That's not to say that a moment of reckoning, a crossroads like this, is not stressful. And that holding seemingly opposing realities in a creative tension doesn't come naturally, and it's not easy. And so, I want to say to you, surround yourselves with others. None of the virtues are meant to be carried alone. Certainly not love, not hope, not social courage. 
not joy. So you must also surround yourself with others who can carry love and hope and courage and joy with you and for you on those days, weeks, months when it's too much to ask for you to carry alone. And I want to end by invoking the wisdom of another civil rights leader, Vincent Harding, who uh, ran the Mennonite Center in Atlanta and helped develop the, the philosophy of, and teachings of nonviolence. Uh, I was very privileged to interview him a couple of times before he died in 2014, but he spent the rest of his life after the 60s and 70s working with young people in hurting places and bringing the real-world lessons of that movement to their lives. And everywhere I go, I just love standing here with all of you today. You're so beautiful and with your energy. And I, I experience there's a real inflow of young uh, listeners in our audience, and, I, and, and our audience is richly cross-generational. And I experience such a desire, such a hunger for cross-generational conversation and relationship. So here's something Vincent Harding said to me when I interviewed him. He said, I'm doing pretty well on time too. He said, for me, the question of democracy also opens up the question of what does it mean to be truly human? Democracy is simply another way of speaking about that question. Religion is another way of speaking about that question. What is our purpose in this world, and is that purpose related to our responsibilities to each other and to the world itself? All of that seems to me, he said, to be a variety of languages getting at the same reality, and it seems to me that we need, again, to recognize that to develop the best humanity, the best spirit, the best community, there needs to be discipline, practices of exploring. How do you do that? How do we work together? How do we t walk, talk together in ways that will open up our best capacity and best gifts? That's just not a question that's being asked when we ask about how we come together politically or socially. And Vincent said, my own feeling, as I try to share again and again, is that when it comes to creating a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious democratic society, we are still a developing nation. We've only been thinking about this for half a century. But my own deep, deep conviction is that the knowledge, like all knowledge, is available to us if we seek it. The older I get, the more I am convinced that the, that, that magnificent madman Jesus was really talking about something very truthful and powerful when he said, you know, if you allow yourself to really hunger and thirst after the right way, then if you will not back off from that hunger and that thirst, if you will just keep after it, then you will find the way. You will be filled. There's so much that's wonderful in this message for us to take in, that we're, one, that we're in the midst of a long-term project. And it's so refreshing to, uh, to offer something other to you, the young among us, than how much we've broken that it's now your turn to fix. Um, but that this too is all of our calling, to grow up this broken, divided, hurting world to its full human potential, to ferment social healing, to calm fear, to, to weave community, to be lovers, 
to insist on joy, to embody and activate civility as the great spiritual adventure it is, to activate love as a public good, and so to evolve common life for this century in ways that we here this morning cannot yet begin to imagine. My blessings to you and thank you for having me.